Welcome to the Good Life Central Oregon podcast, where we pursue the good life by helping you pursue yours. The good life begins with a roof over your head, so please contact our sponsors for this podcast, Remax Revolution and Sisters. Remax is the number one real estate company in the world, and Remax Revolution offers new solutions for better results. Go to ilovecentraloregon.com to find out more. First of all, I want to say to all of you who are listening, thank you so much for uh, listening to this podcast. Uh, none of this is worth a while unless uh, I have people listening. Uh, please send me your feedback. You can send me an email at uh, teamglco at gmail.com. You can also uh, send me uh, uh, your comments via iTunes uh, through ratings. I'd love uh, to uh, get your thoughts and, and suggestions as well as uh, what you like and what you don't like. Uh, but with this next interview, uh, I'm I'm super excited. Uh, There's a gentleman that has become a friend of mine. Ken Rutgers uh, was a Green Bay Packer through the 80s and 90s for 12 seasons, same team for 12 seasons, uh, and has a Super Bowl ring from 1996. Uh, he was an offensive tackle uh, and uh, was a first-round draft pick in 1985. Uh, however, after his 12 seasons, he retired but found the transition exceptionally challenging, even though he prepared pretty well for it. Uh, he later formed a business called GamesOver.org to help professional athletes cope with life outside the game. He is a Christian, a father, a husband, professional athlete, business owner, a mentor, a teacher, an author. A, he's earned his PhD, he's got his doctorate, and he's a professor at a local college. Uh, he's a, a professor of sociology. Um, and one thing I, in my research, I found uh, really interesting and uh, not something that I expected was uh, his position. The offensive tackle uh, is charged with protecting the quarterback and blocking anyone with the ball, which we all know. However, offensive tackles are reportedly some of the biggest and smartest players on the field, uh, according to uh, an IQ test that they do at draft time. Um, I do have to beg your pardon that I had some uh, technical challenges with this audio. Uh, Ken comes in loud and clear. My audio is just a little bit scratchy. Please forgive me for that. But uh, what he has to share is very, very worthwhile. And thank you so much for listening. Here's the interview. I want to hear about your beginning in, in sports as okay. a kid. Where were you? What did you do? Yeah, well, I, <clears throat> I'd done a little bit of, my, uh, of uh, Little League Baseball. Um, not a lot of it. Um, my dad had, uh, I, we weren't a big sports fan family. Um, my dad had played a little bit of basketball in high school, and um, that was kind of the extent of it. Um, when I was eight years old, my mom um, died of a brain tumor. And uh, so I was a bit of a, of a lost soul, you know, as a kid in, in uh, upper grade school and then junior high. And I think out of my dad's concern, he saw that and saw sports as a good arena, a good coping skill, something mm. positive yeah. uh, to, to sink into, a culture to sink into that has good support, good challenge. And uh, he twisted my arm pretty hard. I didn't want to go out for football. He said, I want you to go out for football. Just try it. If you don't like it, uh, then finish the season and you can quit um, and do something else. But he goes, I want you to give it a chance. So uh, I started playing football in the eighth grade and loved it and was found I was pretty good at it. I could work hard to get better at it. Uh, as far as like, to, although, although the very first day I went out for tight end, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> they said, well, you, you're not fast enough or athletic enough, so we're going to push you over the offensive line, <laughs> which I was like, what? You didn't even give me a chance. <laughs> How funny. Yeah, so... Um, I didn't know from the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I think, you know, that um, football and, this, and, and sports, and I played basketball and golf and track uh, through the shot put discus. I think those areas... Um, in sports were, were good environments, good culture, good support, good people, uh, and I found I was good at it, so it was a very positive experience from the beginning. 
and so I think that's what what continued to fuel um, a lot of a lot of my uh, passions in sport was it was a good fit. How much of your mother did you carry into the sports, or at least that experience of losing her? Yeah, I, you know, I think that was a big part of it. And then my dad um, got married a couple years later, and um, and that was a hard transition as mm -hmm. well. Um, you know, have been you know, uh, well, I don't know, ten or eleven years old. You know, getting ready to go into those teen years, and uh, the challenges of of having a stepmother. Um, we have we're really good friends today, but it, but when I was in my teens, I'm sure I was uh, I was a challenging Le teenager. Less than an optimal stepmother. Yeah, and so we had spats, and we had um, you know nothing physically violent, but you know some yelling matches, and th that's not fair, and you know mm -hmm. yeah uh, type of things. And so I I took that. I took the, the frustrations and anger. I think that a lot of high school, uh, you know, young men and women can feel at times that frustration or anger, and I poured it out on the football field. It was a good good way of, uh, it was a good coping mechanism. Yeah, which is kind of an inter interesting concept, not, not in a bad way, but, um, you know, when I played sports in high school and college, one of the one of the books I got in college, our coach actually used to give us reading assignments, but this particular book, he actually bought each of us a copy. And it was, uh, and I, uh, it was uh, Jim Lohr's uh, Mental Toughness for Sports. And in that book, he basically talked about uh, the second best way to approach sports is through anger and just really dive into it and vent your anger and your frustration and get it out. But he said that the, the next best way, the best way, is to come at it from a sense of pure joy and pure uh, enjoyment, and just kind of, and that's where the flow state uh, comes into play. That Michael Jordan was known for, and many right, it's that, it's that athletic zone where, where you know, there is a, there is a, um, what Freud talks about as an eros um, to sport, where it is the beauty of sport, the beauty of motion, you know, feeling like you have complete control, you know, in those mm -hmm. special moments of sport, the beauty of being in the zone of. Mm -hmm. Of being one in the moment, um, and then on the other side of that coin, Freud um, hints at, and other people have picked up on this and wrote, and wrote extensively on a Thanatos of sports, which is kind of the more the death, darker side of competing and um, you know the the aggression. Mm -hmm. So I think football definitely has both of those in it and I and I enjoyed both of those um, at different points in my career and different times but but, but mostly together but throughout did, my did, career. did you flirt between the two was an evolution from one to the other or were they on both present? at the same time there was you know even though offensive line you don't think of as being um, at, you know highly athletic or choreographed or there's so much uh, learned skill in technique that you have to learn that in, in some ways it was very, very much, uh, you, you know, it was a ballet to some mm -hmm. degree, but it was a very aggressive, violent ballet. And I think that's what you see in, in football. Maybe that's why it resonates as, as the most popular sport in our culture, because it does have aspects of both, you know, the Eros, the beauty, and the Thanatos, the, you know, the more aggressive, darker, mm -hmm. competing, you know, winning side. Which would make sense, especially as a spectator. What are the two times you see people jumping out of their chair when someone just gets hit really, really hard or someone makes just that impossible catch? Right, that leaping, the, that uh, ballet type. Yeah. Like incredible athletic yeah. catch. Yeah. In interesting. Um, so there's there's a positive outcome, a positive fuel from both the, the light and dark side of the mentality into sports. Right, and I think the other thing too is you can think of, you know, if, if we are human and uh, we look at uh, human behavior, human need, what we need, what, what part of our needs are as humans are going to be different, but some, but for certainly part of um, sports uh, uh, allows us to, to express that need that some people have, and some people do it in boxing and football, mm -hmm. more aggressive, violent sports. Some people do it in tennis or golf, a little less, obviously quite a bit less violent, but, but athletic as well. And so, you know, running, I mean, yeah, so I think that there are opportunities for people to express who they are uh, within the sport. I think that's a good thing uh, for society, although, you know, I know with, the, with concussions and potential injuries, and there is, there is risk, uh, which is part of the Thanatos, that mm -hmm. risk of, 
of uh, facing, you know, uh, that, that in-your-face confrontation. Yeah. Did you find that uh, to be a common theme with a lot of players in the in the league? What, as, as far as uh, kind of skirting that line between anger and joy, the light and the dark, the ethos and thanatos that you're talking about? Yeah, I, mean, I think um, to differing degrees, uh, different players exhibited those things. I've, I've uh, you know, been with guys that, you know, have not had too much, you know, anger. And I've had, I've, I've talked with guys that, for example, Ken Hutcherson, um, who recently passed away, he was a pastor up in Seattle and oh, was yeah. a linebacker for the Seahawks, but but played a lot of years for the Dallas Cowboys, been a linebacker. And what got him interested in football from the beginning was he said, hey, uh, it was a way for me to go hit white guys uh, without getting arrested for breaking the law. You know, and then, of course, he, you know, it, um, reconciled those, those uh, anger issues along racial lines mm -hmm. with himself. But that would be a, one example of a unique perspective. Hmm. What about, um, do you see a similar um, mindset in the non-professional athlete uh, population as well. You know, are there are these same issues that you're seeing in in the microcosm of the NFL and and the um, the mindset of thing, whatever it is that fuels people to do what they do. Do you see the same type of thing on uh, on a day to day normal? Well, I see basis? It, I see it mostly in age groups. I think you know the the, uh, the teenagers, especially male male teenagers, where they got a lot of testosterone very heightened and so that plays into being a little more obviously more aggressive mm -hmm. in your approach to life so I'd say age group mostly but I think you know as I coached high school football here in Sisters for oh gosh at least a dozen years uh, you can you can see the difference even amongst athletes between say soccer you know male soccer players and male football players I mean there was a different kind of a of an approach or perspective or person, personality, however you want to express there, but you can see the difference. Mm -hmm. And soccer players, you know, didn't make the best football players and football players um, didn't always tend to make the best soccer players. I mean, there is a, a certain mentality to different sports. And golfers would be, you know, at the other end of the extreme from, from football. Sure, sure. Um, although, uh, the few times I have had a chance to golf, I've felt a tremendous release after hitting that tiny little ball as hard as I can, or as far as I can, I should say. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, I think I would guess water polo. I've never played water polo, but talking to different water polo athletes, yeah. I mean, it can be a pretty vicious, yeah. you know, vicious, um, you know, game underneath the water with kicking and tugging and pulling and pinching, and uh, it can get pretty pretty, you know, nasty or violent. Yeah, there's a certain catharsis that that, uh, that I certainly felt. Granted, I was a goalie in the cage, so I wasn't uh, getting punched and bit and kicked like the other guys. But um, but uh, the, the catharsis, I think, for me, of course, this isn't, uh, you know, this interview is about me, but just to kind of share that, it was, it was well, I, I would imagine it's much like being a lineman. My job was to either stop the ball when it shot, or it was to prevent a shot. So, if, and I've got pretty good being as tall as I am. I could go out and stop the whole man from getting the ball, or take it from him as soon as he, you know, got it struggling. So I was able to manipulate both those situations, prevent it, and stop it. And and that's where my catharsis came from, is being able to do that efficiently, successfully. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, we we tap into those things. Yeah. And we match up, you know, we match up with our sport, and, and if we continue, if we continue getting something out of our participation in sport, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, actively playing, the beauty, um, the the competition, the camaraderie, uh, you know, I, I know I've coached kids in high school that, you know, they just want to be part of the team. They want to be with the guys. Other athletes want to go out and play college ball. Uh, there are some athletes that are. Uh, they want to wear the Letterman's jacket or the jersey on Fridays. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, so there's a host of of uh, goals or reasons why people play and participate in athletics. But as far as sustaining a long-term professional athlete career, even someone who plays high school and college, th those motivations seem to be, from my experience, similar. Because I mean, going from high school to college, there's a big difference 
about the age group is about the same, but now we're talking about your experience going from high school or starting from junior high after the death of your mother, going to high school and then college and then pros and staying the pros for, was it 12 years? Yeah, 12 years. So, and I think going from high school to college was the biggest jump. Really? Yeah, I was, um, I was young for my, for my grade level, so mm -hmm. I had an August birthday. And so I was 17 when I when I put on, you know, when I was in. Yeah, came I, to the, I had a November USC. birthday. I had the same situation as you. Yeah. I, uh, so that makes a big difference. Um, a huge difference. Yeah, and and of course going into college at 17, and you got, you're kind of still a boy to some degree, yeah. you know, and you're going against men. And you're expected you by 30 or 40 pounds or 22 years. And you're expected to suddenly grow up and be right. just like everyone else when you're yeah. a year younger. Right. So that yeah. was a, you know, I think that was a the biggest challenge. Plus, then you're away from home for the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're in the college, college level academically. So all those things play. You're learning how to spread your wings for the first time, which is <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but as far as yeah, we talked about that, s sustaining that motivation, whatever, wherever that comes from. How did you sustain your motivation throughout your professional career, even though it started? Um, uh, well, you had one motivation when you got into it. You know, said you know your dad wanted you to go play football and right. deal with some of the stuff. How did that change to the end of your career? Well, I think I think a lot of it always played back to um, I think all <clears throat> what what I found early in, in my career, the reasons why, or the the dance that I was able to do with sports as far as coping, using it as a positive coping mechanism in my life was always part of that um, that interaction with mm -hmm. sports. Uh, but I think as far as learning what it meant to be a professional uh, was a process. So learning what it meant to be a committed high school athlete was one level, because you're a student, you're an athlete, you know, you're trying to grow up and find out who you are, who, who am I as this you know, 15 or 16 or 17 year old. Uh, you have your friends and your social environment, and then you go to college, and of course the stakes are higher, and you thought what you were doing at the high school level was very serious, that you were you know, very impassioned, very motivated, very driven, um, and then you get into the college level where everybody was that way, and you have to learn how to take it to the next level. And then, then when you go to the pros, you're no longer a student athlete, now you're a full-time athlete, and mm -hmm. you are being paid to be a professional athlete and have a very high level of commitment and dedication, uh, which looks like, um, you know, my wife's folks have a, a cabin up at Bass Lake in California, or down in Bass mm -hmm. Lake in California, and Fourth of July was always a big event down there. Well, while everybody else is, you know, drinking beer and barbecuing and woo-hoo, you know, celebrating on the boats, I'm out running sprints or lifting weights, uh, sweating, gasping for air, pushing through the pain of training, and if you want to sustain and you want to, to become a professional, those are the decisions that you make uh, in order to be the best. So given that, what made you successful? Yeah, well, I mean, my willingness to do those things, my willingness to say I'm going to, or probably fear was part of that as well. So, you know, I don't want to get embarrassed. I didn't want fear of failure. Um, a striving towards wanting to be the best, wanting success. I mean, and I think some of that plays into, oh, Eric, some arrogance or narcissism to a certain level for sure. Which um, I, there, I think there needs to be a, a healthy dose of that in any any athlete or performer or someone with a little bit of mojo. Yeah, and, and I think the, the um, you know, there is a bit of hubris that's developed within a sports culture. Uh, as you move up mm -hmm. and, and deeper into the culture and your identity starts to, to become more of that I am an athlete. And it kind of becomes this, uh, you know, like we're athletes and they're not, kind of an us mm -hmm. and them mentality, which a lot of groups have, you know, um, whether it's political ideologies and it's an us and them, or whether it's, uh, you know, careers or part of social groups or ethnic groups or gender groups. I think you start to, you know, the more you identify with your group, the more easily it becomes an us and them. And they don't understand, you know, so as an athlete it was, it was we're special, we're different, um, we're treated different, we have high expectations on us, of course, 
Yeah, I mean, for example, one of the complaints that we all tended to complain about in the locker room is, I can't believe we got to work on Thanksgiving, or you know, I can't believe we got to work on, you know, we got to work on Christmas morning, or well, you know, a lot most people don't work on Christmas morning or Thanksgiving, but there are a lot of people that do. Mm-hmm. You know, so to start to start to think, hey, I'm the only one, I'm special and different. Um, you know, that is a kind of a hubris, you know, hubris type of an arrogance that. Uh, that athletics tends to breed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but do you think you were inherently more disciplined or more competitive or um, more driven? More driven. Yeah. More so I, than the average person. More driven because I did see um, guys who were far greater athletes that I thought, oh man, I'm never going to break into the starting lineup, you know, at the college level because the guys older than me, I, some of them were. were better athletes, bigger, stronger, maybe better athletes. There were, there were some guys coming behind me that came in uh, as freshmen when I was a sophomore or junior that had great athletic ability. But for whatever reason, uh, you know, their level of commitment, their level of passion and dedication, uh, they got distracted into the social, um, the social trappings of mm-hmm. being on your own and being away at college and all the pretty women and the parties. And, mm-hmm. and so... You know, time is a great, uh, time really works as, as a great equalizer. And that's part of dedication, of, of being committed and consistent over the long haul. You get rewarded for that. That's a, it's kind of a natural principle. Which is funny, because about uh, almost two months ago now, I got to uh, hear Darren Hardy speak. Darren Hardy's the publisher of Success Magazine, and he's got this, um, this talk that he gives about the compound effect. And you could take the three guys that are equal in every way and their tiny little micro decisions that they make on a moment-to-moment, day-by-day right. basis, that after a week, you're not going to be able to tell a difference. But as 10 years go by, there's a huge difference. Yes. And, and, uh, and I've kind of heard that similar story before, but the way he put it just really synced with me and made me reevaluate some of the things I've done in my 20s. And uh, I certainly would love to go back to my 25-year-old self and slap him a little bit. <laughs> but uh, well, wouldn't we all? Yeah. Wouldn't we all? But uh, well, but it sounds like your your 25-year-old self, you know, did did fairly well. Yeah, I mean, not, not, not perfect by any stretch. I mean, I, I there were, you know I would go back and tell myself to do some things different. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe not so much related to sports, because I was pretty buttoned down down on that. I was pretty structured, pretty uh, pretty regimented, pretty strict on my training. Uh, and maybe I would have told myself lighten up a little bit, um, and uh, <clears throat> and pay a little more attention to your marriage, pay <laughs> you know, pay a little attention to other things in life. Mm-hmm. So, are those the things that? Um well, I, I hate to use the, the R word, regret, but are those things that um, you wish you'd given more due or that were a little bit more important? Yeah, I don't know if regret, you know, I think being honest and being and being able to look at it and go, okay, that's who I was at the time. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, um, if I could go back, I could change it, but I can't go back, so all I can do is move forward. Uh, and we've put in a lot of hard work in our marriage, Cheryl and I have, almost 30 years now being married. And we've traveled through a lot of life experience together, uh, through football seasons and injuries and family crises, the birth of three kids, um, you know, in-laws and outlaws, and all the things that mm-hmm. regular people who are married experience. And so, yeah, it's, yeah. it's been a good journey, and we've worked hard you know, to, to work on improving our relationship, which has been valuable and, and beneficial to both of us. So then outside of the game, of course, talking about family and life outside of the game, what, what are some of the sweetest memories that you have? I mean, the obvious ones are the day you got married and then the day your children were born. So well, I'll, 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 oh, you I'll, took those, yeah, you yeah, so, those, those yeah. four things right away from me. Um, you know, I would, I think, um, you know, uh, being able to come out uh, after a game you know, and be reunited with my wife. That was, um, there was something about going out and doing a good job. Uh, you know, I say job and, you know, playing a great game, putting mm-hmm. everything you had into the game, leaving it all in the field, and then being able to, you know, see your wife and come out of the locker room and just embrace her and 
uh, reconnect. And so I think that was, um, I don't know, there's something sweet about that. Well, and, and I don't mean to sound cheeky. I don't, I don't intend to sound cheeky at all, but is that kind of like a, a Rocky Balboa moment? Uh, well, yeah, I get, I, I'm such a terrible sports fan, and, and Rocky was like, yeah, Rocky's okay. I mean, you did come out of Rocky feeling like, I, I, I can take on the world. Well, but just that moment after uh, after, yeah. after finally, yes, yeah. Adrian, just yelling for Adrian, Adrian, Adrian. Is it just kind of a moment like that? Yeah. Or, that just like, kind of yeah, culminates experience? I think because we always felt like we were doing it together. I mean, yeah. it was a partnership where... You know, I might have been on the field, she might have been in the stands, but we were doing it together. And, and as a matter of fact, you guys were team number one. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, part being part of the games too. Um, when she was in the stands at, at the home game, she I think only went to one away game here because the kids. But um, every time the quarter would uh, would change, either the end of the first quarter, second, third, or fourth quarter, um, I would I would give a little signal to her. You know, say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm with you. You're with me. I appreciate that. Nice. It was just a connection that we had, and it was a mo it was a mo good motivation for me. I think it was a good connection for her, a, a, a statement of value. Well, everyone else thought that you were trying to tell tell someone to run home and steal third. You you actually saying, yes, <laughs> I, was, I love you, dear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice. Um, so you've also been inducted to the Packers Hall of Fame? Yeah, the induction ceremony is um, this coming summer Yeah, um, what in July, so we'll go back, um, fly the girls out, our daughters, uh, and yeah, they, they haven't been back to Wisconsin since they were, you know, five or six years old, so, but they have really fond memories. I mean, Wisconsin, uh, the folks there are incredibly um, gracious people, great, just good, hearty, mid Midwest people, um, so we're looking forward to going back and seeing some friends. And I get back every couple of years. I think Cheryl's been back once. The girls haven't been back at all. Hmm. So, what what does that mean to you? As uh, I mean, that, and of course the obvious part would be, you know, cool. I get get my name on the wall and I get some get some uh, kudos for a job well done. But but you've been away from the game for some time now. You're not there. You're a Professor, um, you, uh, should I call you doctor? <laughs> you yeah, can if you want, but I, uh, I don't require that. But, um, <laughs> yeah. What does that mean to, in the grand scheme of things? I'm still trying to figure that out. I mean, obviously it was a great honor. It took me a while to kind of go, wow, that's um, wow, that's really pretty big. That's like, you know, but it, but it also feels like at least two or three lives ago. I mean, I've, I've had a publishing career. I've had uh, you know, Games Over With was a nonprofit for athletes mm -hmm. in transition, and, and now I've been teaching at the community college uh, here in, in Bend, uh, Central Oregon Community College, for the last five years. And, and uh, gee, I don't know, football seems like such a distant uh, past life almost. But it was good to, uh, to start, it's been good to start to revisit some of those memories and talk with the kids, mm -hmm. and talk with my wife Cheryl, and uh, even. Um, have some some fun conversations with uh, my dad or uh, my father-in-law. You know, there's a lot of good memories around football. And so, uh, you you're pretty uh, outspoken. At least you know you've written books about being a parent and and being a role model and and um, and you have that type of mindset too as far as doing a job well done. How does this play into now being a professor of young students, young minds, being um, a father of, of young girls? What do you think being a Packers Hall of Famer and having a, a ring, what do you think that kind of impact would have on their mentality? Or well, I mean, they've said they're real proud of me. I think, you know, that uh, I think they're happy for me, you know, to get that recognition. Um, you know, I don't know. I really haven't, other than you know, um, a text message or a, you know, or a, a phone call to say congratulations. That's really neat, and they're excited to go back. I don't know that it. Um, I don't know how much it really means to them, because I'm still their dad, of you know, far and above <laughs> anything I did, yeah. you know, on the football field. 
So do you think that they, they don't understand the significance, or do you think they do understand the significance? No, I think they, I think, they think it's cool. I'm not even sure I understand the significance. I mean, I, the, one thing I, did, yeah, the yeah. one thing I did that I did do when I played was uh, when they made the final cut at the end of the preseason and I made the team, I would always go that week to visit the Hall of Fame and just sit and think and soak in the richness of the history and heritage of the Green Bay Packers, mm. which is they've got a long uh, winning tradition, Vince Lombardi, uh, Curly Lambeau. It's one of the oldest um, current uh, NFL franchises uh, in the history of professional football in the United States. So they've got an amazing um, history. And so just to go sit um, and wander through the halls, you know, of the Packer Hall of Fame um, upon making the team each year was a really important thing to me. Uh, so, yeah. I think, you know, it has some special meaning in that way. So do you feel like you have uh, more credence to give back? Now that, now that you're on this side of being the mentor, being the advisor, being the educator? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I coach, um, I teach. Uh, you know, I think I've always been involved um, with some kind of an impact or influence in people's lives and seeking that for my own life. Mm -hmm. You know, observing other people, asking questions, uh, taking people out for a coffee or when I get a chance to, to meet with somebody who I perceive to be, mm, this guy's got some or this gal's got some wisdom to share mm -hmm. or some life experience I can learn from. Um, so I've, that's been a big part of my life going both ways is seeking those mentors but also being open to mm. being a mentor of people who are seeking my advice as a mentor. And uh, but there's that saying that those who can't do or those who don't do, they teach. But it seems like you've got a bit of both. You have done, you can do, and you are teaching. Well, I can't do football anymore. No, I mean, I've been in the private sector, you know, as a... Um, you know, in publishing, uh, yeah. I did some real estate appraisal for a while. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, huh. yeah. Um, yeah, I was kind of, as probably, if I hadn't played uh, football in the pros, I probably would be appraising real estate down in Bakersfield, California. That was kind of the, the track I was on. Really? Yeah. Well, you just answered one of my future questions. Perfect. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll just pause that and copy that little section and fast forward it. So if you didn't play football, you would have been a real estate appraiser. I would, yeah, or something in, yeah, something in real estate. But, but I was doing real estate appraising during uh, the last couple of years of my uh, of when I was playing in college. Huh. That was when student athletes used to work in the summers. Oh, earn a couple extra bucks, yeah, save yeah. up, so when they got hungry, they could afford to buy their own tacos at Taco Bell. Well, here I wasted my time lifeguarding at the beach. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know how to waste. Actually, for for that time and for that age, we got paid exceptionally well. Yeah. To to sit there at the beach and uh, you know make sure people were getting hurt, make make sure people were properly ap applying sunscreen. If you get my drift, we yeah, can't that's much. important. Did you get any training from David Hasselhoff or uh, how to run properly? <laughs> yes, yes. I, we we watch we watch religiously. Watch, yeah. Yes, that was our training video. Um, now. Um, talking about, um, well, kind of talking about the Hall of Fame and, and, and you've been around people who, who were successful in their field. What do you think, it, what's the difference between those people who are successful and those people who aren't? Those people who could have and didn't and those who did. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm still trying to think about that as well as I observe my students. You know, who are the successful students, who aren't. I think it's, and I think, you know, I may be even putting it in an academic perspective in my own life. Um, because when I, when I went into college, I was not, I was a C student at best. I was not a great student um, in high school. And went to college and, and struggled. And at some point, I had to make a decision to either say, okay, I'm going to kind of bobble on the bottom in life, uh, distracted by other things that were um, pleasant, or I could delay that gratification and give up some of those pleasures for uh, the hope of a future um, opportunity and a, and a success, uh, successful future uh, 
And so I kind of just came to a crossroads in life where it's like, well, I can see if I don't get serious about my schooling, about my, a little more serious about my athletics uh, at the end of my um, sophomore year, my junior year, then, then I knew that uh, I was going to just kind of be a C student in life. I was kind of going to be that C guy. And I had to come to terms with what does it mean to be an A person, an A-level person hmm. in academics, in athletics, in my life, uh, in my relationships, in my um, morals and values and behaviors. And I made that decision. That was what I wanted to do. And so being able to not only say that, you know, make that decision, but then carry it out. Not just lip service, but actually, you know, carry um, carry it through into my actions. And so that you're making that sound like it was a relatively simple decision for you, was it? No, I mean, and when I say there was a point in time, I don't mean necessarily a minute in time. I mean it was over a you know a, a season of life, and it was and it was. Um, you know, class after class of trying to take the shortcuts, mm-hmm. or trying to to uh, to um, skimp by uh, and seeing if I could survive. And it's like, you know, I want more. I want more than that. But it but it took. You know, it was it was the season of life where where I looked at things and it was like, wow, you mean the extra bit of work seems like a lot, but it's not that much. But then it makes a lot of difference, or the, a lot of work makes a little difference, you know, in the moment, but makes a big difference over time, like you talked about. Kind of like that compound effect that Darren Hardy talks about. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, making the decision to go, okay, look, going to class is a non-negotiable. You know, lifting weights or running sprints on the 4th of July, it's a non-negotiable. Um, getting to the gym, you know, on Monday morning in the off-season is a non-negotiable. Uh, you know, maybe I wish I, you know, Going, going back to what we talked about earlier, maybe, maybe there were times where, you know, a really sick kid and a sick wife and said, well, that's negotiable. Mm-hmm. At the time, I would say, no, that's non-negotiable. You know, you gotta, you know, you gotta be sick with the kids on your own for a couple of hours when I go work out. Um, and those are things, those are part of the things we've worked on. Yeah, after sure. All this over with. But you know, when I, when I, um, when I went to work for Multnomah, <clears throat> I figured, oh, this ought, this will be pretty easy for me to, uh, you know, to transition over because, I mean, you know, it's not like this is sports. I mean, you know, you do have to have a certain level of skill, no matter who you are, you know, at a minimum, athletic ability and physical skill to make it in the NFL. Um, so going to business, you know, working for a publishing company shouldn't be that big because you don't need athletic skills, so we'll all be the same. What I found was when I got to Multnomah, I found that, wow, these VP, you know, the people that were successful, you know, in the publishing industry and also within the company itself, Multnomah, had skills and talents uh, that made them exceptional. There really was this um, sales um, talent that people that people kind of naturally had, mm-hmm. and then of course to be the best salesperson, you had to then take that talent and and work on being a skillful salesman, and that was what made you a really top level salesman. Because you had some of the, and you know you you're in real estate, so mm-hmm. you're, I mean you know that uh, you know there's just some people that just have kind of that natural. I mean they just live their lives. Yeah. It's just who they are. They're salespeople. Yeah, you know, it, there's a particular are, passion and um, affinity for Right, and there are people, you know, Don Jacobson, who, um, you know, was the, the owner of, of Multnomah. I mean, his skill set, his entrepreneurialism, his creativity, his ability to see, um, you know, uh, business opportunities before they happen and, and the benefits of that are, are off the charts. So it's, I think part of being successful too is being able to see where your strengths are and then how to use those or apply those to the areas that you want to move forward in. Uh, and and mm-hmm. I think I've always been able to do that a little bit or at least assess that in my own life. So when I, I remember um, even just talking about this, maybe remember about being recruited by USC and going, oh my goodness, you know, Anthony Munoz, Brett, you know, a first round uh, All-American, Brad Buddy, Outland Trophy winner, uh, and, and Anthony Munoz, Hall of Fame, NFL Hall of Famer, and Keith Van, I mean, all these first rounders, I'm like, how am I going to compete 
coming out of some little Bakersfield, you know, high school, mm-hmm. going down to LA and competing on this big level. Well, their weight room was, didn't seem like, you know, was kind of a small weight room. I didn't get the feeling that, that these guys spent a lot of time in the weight room. Um, they did, but you know, a lot of natural, just big guys. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, ah, that could be maybe an area where, you know, I have an advantage, you know, where I understand. And this was like in the early, late 70s, early 80s. And so weightlifting hadn't become what it is today. And facilities at the college level, like, like the new facility, Oregon, mm-hmm. USC just got a new facility a year ago. Uh, but, you know, they're all competing on their facilities because they use that for recruiting. And, sure, yeah. You know, yeah, it wasn't quite, quite the level that and, it is today. And I just make a suspicion that uh, U of O doesn't play fair when it comes to <laughs> the, the quality of their facilities and recruiting. Well, I mean, I, I took a tour of their facility um, a couple months ago. Yeah. And, I, and all of a sudden I was like, hey, that doesn't seem fair. You know, we need to we need to take Phil Knight's money and redistribute to share the wealth. Like, wait a second. Yeah. Gosh, what am I turning into a Marxist or something? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, so you can see where that you know when you, when, you, <laughs> yeah. when somebody's got yeah. But you know what? USC's got you know, all these schools have a lot lot of uh, donors and uh, you know they all, they all have their their Phil Knights to some degree, not mm-hmm. maybe quite to that degree, but to a high sure. level. Sure. 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 Um, <laughs> Let's see, we were talking about uh, those who achieve and those who don't. Um, one of the things I was thinking about is, uh, or as you were talking about that, is that, I'm sorry, this, I kind of laugh when I think I'm about to say this on air, but uh, the, the quote from Yoda in Star Wars, the whole do or do not, there is no try. And getting back to your experience of, Graham, you sit over a season of trying to come up with a decision of the type of person you were going to be or not going to be and what you were going to do. And, and um, personally, I love the idea of, of you know, you talked about these things are non-negotiable. I, we're, we're, I'm making this decision and I'm locking it in. We're going to reestablish a new normal and that's how it's going to be. But that seems so difficult. It's easy to say and then to actually act it out. And that's what I want to follow up with is how you, how were you able to stick to that new normal? Well, you know, I mean, even as you're talking about this, I would say part of it too is, is that, you know, the, we talked about earlier, you know, with my mom dying and, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the conflicts with my stepmom and having that as an outlet. I mean, I, I do see that as a, um, as a common denominator amongst athletes or even su- successful people in other areas is there's something, um, that's, that's not quite fully healthy emotionally, mm. or mental, or, you know, emotionally, you know, and I, I wrote an article earlier um, when I started Games Over called Sick Enough to Make the Cut. And you kind of, and you know, you're all, yeah. you're all, you're, I mean, if you, you played college, mm-hmm. um, and that's high level. I mean, that is really high level. And so you're with, you're with a group of, of guys in an athletic culture that, you know, there's a little bit of mental sickness you know, or at least the emotional sickness, you know, where it's like you're a little twisted. Yeah, but I think the same is true with uh, artists and musicians. I mean, the, the, yeah. the better songs come from someone who's just a little pissed off. A little off. Or a little yeah. off. Well, a little off in one way or another. Yeah, yeah exactly. Off or, or, well, especially music artists. They just see the world, you know, I so I have some friends that are, that are professional mu- musicians, and gosh, I mean, they just see the world. And, you know, here we go again saying like, there's differences in who we are. Mm-hmm. And these people, these musicians, I mean, they just think outside the box. They just see the world in a different way. And, and that's part of it. And then their life experience, which adds to that as well. And then their ability to say, hey, I'm willing to, something in them says, I'm going to show you, or I will make it, or you know, I want the ability to have delayed gratification. I think it, it compounds, com- you know, it's, it's com- complex and compounding decisions. Yeah. And, and I think as you get older, it's harder to make those non-negotiables and get them to stick because you don't have as much energy. Um, the old tricks don't work, um, you know, don't work as much as, as they used to because you don't have the energy. But I remember, you know, um, you know, playing all those tricks, you know, or get, so finding ways to get motivated, whether it was, um, you know, attending a John Wooden basketball camp to, to get a, a, a refreshed, motivated perspective from one of the, I think, all-time great coaches. Yeah, absolutely. Or 
whether it was collecting, you know, writing um, to opposing teams, public relations department, asking for eight by tens of my opponents so I could put them up on my garage wall by my um, by my jump by my speed bag and my jump rope. Did you actually do that? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I did. Um, I did that my last year of college and, and through the years in the pros. And, and I would look at those pictures and, I, and you know on my way either into my car to work out or when I got home and I said to myself as I looked at those pictures, did you work out today? Richard Dent, Lawrence Taylor, Derek Thomas, Howie Long, mm -hmm. Bruce Smith, uh, did you work out today? Because I did. And if you worked out today and I didn't, <laughs> then uh, then I'm going to have to pay the price come Sunday during the season. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, I had friends that were like, hey, Rut, you're back in town, you know, it's the off season, let's go out and party. I got to work out. Come on, man, you don't have to work out. You're so good. It's Friday, yeah. yeah, the season's take a three break. or four months away. And I said, I, and, and I finally developed this, uh, this response that was something like this. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll go out and party with you tonight. If you will sit in my offensive line meeting, Monday morning after I give up a sack to Lawrence Taylor and, and and explain to the coach why it's your fault and you should be fired, not me, then I'll go out with you. Uh, so it's that kind of thinking. I don't know necessarily where that comes from um, other than, I, th you know, it, it developed, you know, over time yeah. and, and uh, life circumstances. Now, and I want to talk about the mentality of someone who's not a professional athlete. I mean, that, that seems... That seems normal within the athlete world, but in the world of the regular person, that seems like an extreme way to motivate yourself, however effective. What are some of the things that, um, that the average person out there, you know, and we talked about who I, who I think my, uh, my ideal listener or my, my audience is, what would you say to them as far as using some of these tactics or a little bit more extreme strategies to keep them focused and motivated? What are some of the ideas you'd offer up? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, um, you know, writing down your goals. I mean, even when I was in high school, I would like plot out, here's where I am today on my bench press or my body weight or my body fat percentage. Here's where I want to be in three months, then draw a graph and, and chart your progress. Mm -hmm. You know, being willing to do that. I, I have a much difficult, much more difficult time today actually doing those old tricks mm -hmm. you know they just I don't have the energy for it um, I know a little bit more now with my with my aging experience that those were just tricks but at the time I could you know you can kind of fool yourself yeah. hey, if it worked yeah and you, you start talking to all these different athletes and they'll, they'll tell you the same thing you know how do you how do you motivate yourself to get you know eight reps um, you know you got it in you, but you know you're going to have to really get jacked up to get it done. Mm -hmm. How do you get eight reps consistently every day you go in there at the next level of, of challenge on weight when on your fifth or sixth rep, you're, you're, you know, your mind's starting to say, that's good enough, um, you know, that'll do. You know, what do you do on a Friday where you're burnt out or tired and, you, and the last thing your body feels like, your mind feels like, your heart feels like is going in and pushing it hard, then do you say, well, you know what, um, I'm, I'm going to tailor it a little bit, but I am going to go in. I am going to get my foot inside the gym door. I am going to, I am going to, to somehow modify it where, where it's, where it's uh, not compromising, but adjusting to what, you know, your circumstances. Yeah. Well, it's it, tricky. Well, in, uh, having an interview with Tate Metcalf uh, from Sisters Athletic Club, sure. um, he was the high school coach of Ashton Eden. Um, one of the things that we, that he and I kept talking about was, first thing, just show up. Right. First thing, you just have to show up. And then when you're there, yeah, that's half of it. First but, rep, yeah. It's always just that, it's the little decisions. I mean, it was always, and that was another, like, it wasn't a non-negotiable, but it was a trick. It's like, look, all you have to do is just get to the gym. You don't have to do one rep. I can have an easy day. Don't worry. Just not even it. an easy day. I don't even think about it. It's like I don't even go hard day, easy day. It's just like you don't even have to go that far. In, I didn't have to go that far in my thinking. All I had to say is, look, just walk in the door. Can you do that? Mm -hmm. Can you do that? 
when I coach, you know, it's, it's, it's thinking and breaking down, you know, breaking down those decisions little by little because, like you said, it's compounding decisions. If you can't mm -hmm. say, yes, I'm going to show up, then you can't say, yes, I'm going to put that first rep down. Yeah. And you can't say, I'm going to put the second rep down and the third rep down. And so, you know, when I'm coaching the high school kids, you know, part of the challenge is helping these young men understand what it means to compete, um, how to challenge themselves. So, for example, I'll say, well, you know, how long is a football game? Uh, well, let's see, in a pro game, 15 minutes a quarter, let's see, 60 minutes. I mean, how much do you think is actual playing time on just the offensive side of the ball? Because a play only lasts about three and a half to four seconds. Mm -hmm. And you have maybe, what, 60 plays a game? So that's, what, about 240 seconds, maybe 300 seconds. So about four or five minutes. So really what you're talking about is saying, hey, all you have to do is give everything you can, but only for four or five minutes, Phys at least physically. Yeah. I mean, mentally and emotionally, you have to you know, get there as well. But, but you know, most people, th it's easy to talk in terms of the physical. Mm -hmm. I said, but how about this? Can you just give me one play for four seconds? Can you do that? Yes. Okay, and now what about the next play? Yes. And, you know, uh, and, and I think a lot of athletes, well, especially football players to some degree, but because it is, you know, it is like reload, fire, reload, fire. You know, it's not like a, it's not like a hockey game or a, a basketball yeah. game where it's this, this flow, yeah. you know, uh, or a basketball, yeah. So, but I, I had a buddy that was um, an a, a all-pro and a team captain for Pittsburgh. He spent his last year in Green Bay. His name's Tunch Ilkin, and uh, he does, he's the voice of the Steelers, and he's in radio broadcast. And, um, so he would come into the locker room. It was so funny. We'd go out to warm up, you know, on a game day. We'd go out to do the warm-ups, and we'd come in. And he used to do this in Pittsburgh, and so when he came to Green Bay for the one year he played in Green Bay, we, we became really good friends. Um, he would shout really loud, this is the biggest game of my life! You know, and it, it was, it's one of those sayings where it's like athletes get that immediately, you know, like college and pro athletes understand that because you learn over time that there is no yesterday game and there is no tomorrow game. It is today. So it's about being in the moment. Yeah, it's exactly. About, it's about being in the moment. That means your concentration is in the moment. It doesn't mean you don't want to not look at doesn't mean you want to exempt the past as a learning lesson and it doesn't mean you want to forget about the future in preparation but as far as where your mental focus and concentration is it's in the moment mm -hmm. and so when he says this is the biggest game of my life i mean if we were playing a you know a, a you know a terrible team a bottom 10 team that was had a bad you know had a losing record wasn't really the biggest game of my life well no but was it for that day yes and what's the biggest half of, you know, in a, in a football game, what's the biggest half of your life, the first or second? Well, of course, it's the one you're in. Yeah. And the yeah. quarter and the, and the series, and of course, that means that the biggest play of your life is the one right now. Part two with Ken Rutgers is coming up next on the Good Life Central Oregon podcast. Thank you for listening.